Hello, and welcome to episode 110 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me for this episode is Carl Bialik, my longtime co-host and now occasional contributor. Status not entirely clear, but I'm obviously always happy to have him with me. Um, Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. My status is always happy to talk tennis with you. Excellent. Um, okay, so... Australian Open. We're going to get to Stan Wawrinka in a little bit. We're going to talk some Tennis 128, but we're still within a week of the end of a pretty consequential two weeks of tennis history. So let's start with what's fresh in our minds. Uh, Nadal was the big story. We've probably talked to Nadal enough, so we can lead with Ashley Barty instead. Also a pretty big story. Uh, We've been raving about Ashley Barty on the podcast for years now. Um, I feel like we have a better reason than ever before to rave about Ashley Barty. Uh, if you had to pick one thing, what is the one Ashley Barty skill, ability, X factor, whatever that makes her so great? It's so boring to say because it's the also the most important skill to have in tennis. But her serve, I I had this notion during the tournament that I didn't know how to to check out. So I decided the best way to check it out would be to bring it up with you. Maybe she has the best serve at that height ever uh i don't know how to measure that but you could think of you know ace percentage or you know service point one percentage but anyway i mean the things that that she's she can do with the serve the variety sure but also just the sheer success rate given that she does not have the stature of the other best women servers right now or of all time is to me what stands out the most yeah it's really astonishing i i remember noticing not long ago, she. Th- I think this is still true. She's the second shortest player in the WTA top fifty, and she, depending on which stat you look at, obviously, like you point out, it varies a lot uh, how you measure these things. But she's in the top few of pretty much any serve-based category of areas, and the only woman shorter than she is is Putintseva, uh, who's near the bottom of those categories, as you'd expect a short person to be. The people who are around her are several inches taller, and I, I don't know if there's a historical precedent for that. It's kind of tough to think back to the greats and remember whether they're like 5'4 or 5'7 or 5'8. They all kind of seem short or tall once it gets a a certain amount of time passes. Uh, But what do you think, how how do you think she overcomes that? Because I mean, obviously there's so many great players who are able to serve big by serving down and getting the angles you can get from, from being tall. And that extends even to some some of the women, not just guys like Medvedev or, or Isner, but what is what does Ashley Barty do to be so effective on serve despite being as short as she is? I don't think I'm great at being able to break this down f- by watching her. So some of this is just based on what I've heard commentators say or what my impression is while knowing I'm not really the best at, at, at this part of it, partly because my game is so technically unsound. But it seems like her motion, you know, allows her to, to hit it at the highest point she could. It's She's got very consistent uh, placement of the ball, so it can be very deceptive where she's going, which, which gets her some extra advantage. And presumably lots and lots of practice and great hand-eye coordination because the, the placement just seems so, um, so fine and so, you know, so close to the lines. And then the, the other ingredient for 
any server, but especially one who's not able to serve from quite as high is, is the use of different spins. So, I mean, I, I've just named the other components of being a good server, but it seems like she has them uh, and has them even more than other great servers to compensate for the height. I, I'm not sure I've heard people talk about this, but I, I, I've gotten this sense for a while now. Do, do you agree it seems like she has the least readable serve? I'm just based on on how you see returners react. Like, Do you think that's fair, that she's basically unreadable? Yeah, I mean, the reaction could be a reflection also of just how much time they've got to react once they do or where the ball is, is spinning away from them uh, once they're reacting. That could make it look... Uh, particularly hard to read, particularly deceptive, but it, it certainly seems that way. I mean, I, I always uh, admire Serena's ball toss and motion for that as well. I, I find her her serve pretty tough to read, but um, yeah, Barty's might be the best for that. Yeah, I, I wasn't really watching for this until the last two matches, the semifinal against Keys and the final against Collins, and neither of them are great returners, so it might not really be fair, but Barty's tee serve is so deadly, and I can't remember her hitting a good tee serve and seeing the the returner read it. It seems like they're always standing almost in the doubles alley and just flat-footed watching this tee serve go by. I mean, it might be an ace anyway, but they're not even close. Uh, which, I mean, it was just, just remarkable. Uh, it, it, it seems like so many things about Barty's game are, are weird, and it seems like weird is the wrong word for the best player in the world, but as you point out, she's, she's, she's so dominant on serve despite being short, and she's basically the one good player on tour who relies on a slice. So I want to talk about the slice. Um, do, you, do you think there's a difference between having her, her sort of back, backhand slice as a defensive shot on that side compared to just having a mediocre backhand as a defensive shot? Does she get any benefit from that? Well, it, it does allow you to hit a slower ball while still potentially neutralizing or close to neutralizing the point. So it gives her a little more time to recover position. Uh, she's often hitting it when she's she's stretched to that side or, or pushed deep. Um, but I think precisely what you said of just how rare it is that she hits a slice so regularly makes it more effective than it would be because we, we did see players at this tournament seem to be flummoxed by it in, in a way that I don't think you would see players of kind of a similar level uh, be so surprised in in men's singles where, where slices is more common uh, or, or in, you know, women's singles back when a slice was more common. So, um, yeah, I think... You know, if 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 players started to to try to incorporate into their game, or if lower ranked players we don't know about who who use it uh, move up in the rankings, and suddenly it's something people were encountering more often, maybe she would get less of an effect. She also has a mediocre drive backhand. Maybe that's harsh for the number one player, but I mean, but no, it's not. It's not great. And if it if it were great, she'd be using it more, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think she she's not using the slice only because the slice is effective. And so she could just like shift that balance and it probably wouldn't affect things for her that much. Uh, and in fact, maybe that shot would get a little better if she were if she were using it more often. It's it's also ridiculous to speculate for a player who's number one and been there that long. But people did it with with Federer in the other direction. Like, I wonder what her one handed drive looks like, given that she's so comfortable hitting the one-handed slice, and also volleying. Yeah, it'd probably be pretty good. 
So here's here's a Barty take that I'm trying on. I'm not sure if this is fair or not, but I get the sense that she's so efficient, both with keeping points short and not not always going for lines. Like she she hits hard, she she hits winners, but she doesn't. She, they're pretty high percentage most of the time, and it seems like her highlight reels are relatively boring and. I, just because she she doesn't have to do the acrobatics that other players do, she doesn't end up in these protracted, complicated, like just slugfest rallies that other players are in. In so a a do you do you agree? She's if if you measured players by the entertainment value of their highlight reels, is she on the low end of that scale? I've I've definitely heard that perception. So I, I think you're not alone there. I I don't watch enough highlight reels to be able to judge it. My, my sense from watching them is that any particular play can be amped up or I guess lowered in seeming highlight ability, highlight ability, a word I'll try not to say ever again, uh, by the reaction of the, of the players, especially the one that won the point. So I think that hurts her because she's so understated and doesn't give much even after a great shot. So it doesn't seem like as great of a shot. I also just think, yeah, like setting yourself up to hit a safe forehand winner is the, you know, the bread and butter baseline tennis for probably most great players, but also rarely something you'd want to put in a highlight reel. And that's just so, so much of her game is like setting up for that, for that play on grass. It seems like she comes into net more and she probably could on other surfaces, but it's probably not as advantageous. And why bother? She doesn't need to. She barely did in the final. Collins did more than she did. But uh, I think those are maybe some of her most kind of classic highlight reel points because she really has a nice touch at the net and uh, there can be some fun exchanges. Yeah, that's fair. Um, it seems like the, the nature of the women's game plays some part in that too, that so many of the women she plays are just crushing the ball and accepting a lot of misses. So if if she had to go out and play Justine Henna, then okay, they'd give us some highlight reel stuff. But when she plays Sabalenka, like maybe Sabalenka will hit some highlight reel forehands, but she'll also hit a lot of errors that mean Barty's points are quickly won and not that interesting. She just gets to rack them up that way. Um, let's see. That's Barty's third Grand Slam. What What is your updated estimate of Ashley Barty's career slam total? Seven? What do you think? That sounds about right. I'm really bad about thinking through these questions before I ask you them. So <laughs> I, I, should really, I, I need to make a point of doing that. I, I think at one point I, I was pre-registering my answers, but not today. Um, what about Iga Svantec? She has her one. She's been... I should have checked this stat, but she's she's the only woman to make the quarterfinal of every slam for some decent number of slams. Uh, what do you think her career slam total is? Uh, and in her age, twenty two. She's just is she twenty two? Twenty one? Twenty? Is she still twenty? I think she might still be twenty. This is the fat really oh. the best part of the podcast where Jeff and Carl Google <laughs> people's ages. Or yeah, or try to remember and fail. Uh, right. I mean, she seems older because she's been, she's now just the, the established veteran on every surface. Um, mm, five? 
Okay, I like that. Obviously, there's a lot more. There's a lot more variability in Fiatex total, but sure. I mean, yeah. Is there anybody? Uh, I feel like the field right now is Ashley Barty and challengers, and clearly there's some, there's gaps between the the rest or among the rest of the field, but. Is there anyone you like better than Sviantec as likely to put together like a a solid career resume than Sviantec? We're excluding Fernanda Sabalenka as thirty. Well, that's the, that is the implied question. It, it's it's not a question so much as a test, like a, a loyalty test to the Tennis Abstract Podcast <laughs> and everything we stand for. Purity test. Yeah. It's it's been a while, so I wanted to make sure you remembered. Oh, every time I see your name, I think of it. Um, I guess, you know, the, um, you said Barty and then everyone else. And I think that the one who we can't really rank with, or I can't rank with much confidence is Osaka. Like she, she hasn't played enough since she was, you know, looking like it was Osaka and everyone else for me to really know how, how much she's fallen off of that and how much Barty has risen. So I, I think that's the, for someone as established as her with, now four slam titles uh is that is it four let's all google it together (laughs) she has four uh yes yeah so i mean there shouldn't be much variability there but it's just like i I think this past year went very poorly in terms of her continuing to challenge at slams but also not in a way that suggests she's any less capable so i don't yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to make of her. But other than those three, I yeah, I, it's hard. I mean, it's not like Collins and Keys are just splashing onto the scene and we can expect them necessarily to build on this with, with many slams in the future. It, it could happen, as uh, a fellow we're going to be talking about soon shows, but it's not, um, it's not like it as if they were 20. So... Yeah, I, I don't think any, at least I don't think anything about this Australian Open particularly would put anybody else in that group. Uh, Raducanu and Fernandez, the breakout U.S. Open stars, didn't have particularly good uh, Australian Opens to, to make you like raise a career estimate for either of them. No, really, if you were only going on the Australian swing and you wanted to pick a young star to be a lot more optimistic about, it's probably Anna Samova. Yeah, and it's easy to forget just how young she is, but she's a couple months younger than Sviantek. So the women we've been excited about for the last six months, or I don't know about, I don't know if you've been excited about them. The re- women we've had reason to be excited about are older. So Sakari, Badosa, Kontavite, like they, they could still put together nice careers, uh, but Badosa is the youngest of them at 24. So it's a it's a very different sort of thing than looking at. Looking at Coco Goff or looking at Clara Tossin or Anna Simova or Sviantec mm-hmm. at this point, so it's it's tricky. I I ask I feel like I ask some version of this question in every podcast with everyone I talk to because I have no idea. I don't even really know how to think about these questions because there's just so much variability. And if we stick an algorithm on it, we're gonna say like, oh, this woman is projected to win 1.3 slams with an error bar mm-hmm. of seven. So. And this other woman is projected to win 1.2 with an error bar of eight. So it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's wild. So I'm collecting opinions, let's say. And I'm glad you mentioned Goff because it's, what, while she's had these occasional plateaus, the, the overall trajectory and rise has been 
really incredible and with some really good slam results along the way. Um, so she'd have to, with huge variability, she could certainly never win a slam title. She might never make a, a semi, but um, the, the upside is still very, very high. An interesting comparison that dawned on me because Madison Keys made this run at the Australian Open is I remember when Madison Keys was I mean, basically, let's say the Coco Goff of her generation. Like, I think she got a wild card to U.S. Open qualifying when she was 13. Uh, it was She was very young when people were talking about her as probably the next Serena or the next great. And there was a reason to believe that, looking at her as a 13-year-old. And she's had a very good career. I mean, a career that a lot of women would, would take without thinking twice about. But when you stack that up against the level of expectations in her early teens... Um, it's not a great career. So it, it's, I always think it's useful to keep in mind the, the low end or the low median end of the extremely high expectations we put on breakout stars. And I wonder, like, at this point, now that we've seen Goff break out, not convert immediately. So I mean, she, she's not going to be the next Martina Hingis with you know, multiple Grand Slam titles in her teen years, probably. But would a Madison... She might. I guess it's still conceivable, but it, it's hard to see right now, right? I mean, it, yeah, it, it would it would take a, it, it would be a. I mean, obviously for anyone, it'd be very surprising, but it it would it would take a pretty sharp turn from what we've seen from her for the last year or so. Um, what would you think about a Madison Keys level career for her? Would that be a huge disappointment, or is that the the mean projection? I mean, I, I with the caveat, I don't want to really call anything that is as successful as Madison Key's career thus far, a disappointment or, or putting that kind of pressure on a, on a child. But in terms of like what we could reasonably expect based on historical precedent, I think it would be, it would be below sort of where we'd expect on average her, her career to end up. But, you know, again, like let's, let's see what Key's career looks like when it's done. I, I know, uh, the project of yours we're going to be talking about soon is is taking things as they are right now, but with the understanding that like someone who might look like they're past their peak might have their best years in front of them. So I, not specifically about Keys, although who knows? I mean, she really was impressive in this tournament. She she beat some really good players and she came off a great lead up tournament, so it didn't feel like it came out of nowhere. So uh, maybe maybe there is like uh, a chapter yet in in Keys' career that tops what we've seen so far well maybe if if goff does continue to struggle and i'm using the word struggle relatively speaking uh that'll be something for her to keep in mind that she just needs to plug away for another decade and she can become madison keys a decade later um okay since you've been doing a better job teasing my project than i have um one more australian open topic uh, uh, on nadal okay I, I'm glad people aren't throwing this in my face because I was tweeting projections throughout the tournament and my ELO ratings did not like Rafael Nadal very much uh, going in. I forget what the exact numbers were, but I think even without Djokovic in the draw, before the tournament, Nadal's chances of winning the tournament were like 2% or 4% or something, according to my ELO. Um, obviously, that was wrong in the sense that he won it. Uh, should should we have known that was wrong? Like, it, 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 Is this a... Have we discovered a flaw in in Elo, or at least in my dialect of Elo, that like a great player like Nadal, if if he misses some time or if he uh, if he struggles for a while, he's he's still going to be great. He still has a higher chance than other players of of 
coming through a tournament like this. Like, so yeah, should we have known that that number was too low two weeks ago or three weeks ago? I thought it was closer to one percent. <laughs> I'm not talking shit. I don't think that makes it a worse forecast, but th- no, that's I, my memory. I, I of think it. you're right. Like I, I've just posted so many forecasts at different stages; they're all blending together. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was really low. I mean, I think it, he was he, he was below Sinner, below Alcaraz, and like if we're talking orders of magnitude, he's it it was it was Medvedev and Zverev way above the pack, and then a whole bunch of people below five percent, except for maybe Sinner. So I I think it was reasonable for a bunch of reasons, but maybe the least uh, data-based is, I think if you if you had asked Rafa at the start of the tournament, he wouldn't have given you a number any higher. And, or, you know, if you, if you did it in a way where you had to hand out only 100 percentage points total. And, uh, you know, also, while nobody did ask him, as far as I know, people did ask how he was feeling. And if you interpret his words, he thought there was basically no chance that he was going to win the tournament, which is a little absurd from a 20-time major champ who's still in the top 10. But, um, but no 20-time major on... champ had ever won a slam before. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but one had just made a final. So, you know, at least that would have suggested there was a chance. He, um, he also, you know, had come in with so little preparation after a long time off it was the tournament where he's relatively struggled he's still you know one of the best australian open players of the open era and he um he had a pretty poor record in recent years of you know winning hardcore tournaments or winning any tournaments off clay so maybe since the 2019 us open where he where he beat medvedev um and you know, ELO is based on what what have you done on uh, overall and on the surface lately. And, you know, so he was still getting credit for what he was doing elsewhere, but uh, he was going up He in the draw were some were some really tough players. And that's the other thing. I mean, he didn't it's not like he ranked last among the field in your forecast. There's just there's only 100 percentage points of chance to go around. There's Zverev in the draw, Medvedev in the draw. Uh, all the rest of the top 10 and, you know, some other players who are really tough on the surface, who've been really good recently. I don't know exactly where Rafa ranked in terms of probability going in, but it wasn't all that low because there aren't that many people who can have a chance of 1% or more in a field of 128. So Especially not the type of men's field right now. Yeah, and you exactly. And you have also forecast a lot of tournaments. So occasionally 1% chance players are going to win them. It is ironic that it, until the last, I don't know, maybe the, the last year or, or, or maybe two, um, the, the loudest complaint that I heard about my forecast was that I wasn't giving the top players a big enough chance. And that's particularly true with Nadal at the French, and there's maybe some validity there. But even when it was Djokovic in the lead or Federer in the lead, it was, it was typically like going into a slam, I'd say the favorite had a 28% chance of winning or something like that. And historically, that's roughly what it's been for the top seed. But people don't like that. I mean, you see a dominant Djokovic and you think, okay, well, this guy's definitely going to win. And you can translate definitely however you want, but definitely isn't 28%. Uh, but then now <laughs> you have a, a, a apparently weak Nadal going into the tournament and you have these two dominant guys in Medvedev and Zverev, at least once Djokovic is known not to be playing. And I had them at about the same level, around 30%, more like 25 for for Zverev. I guess it was more like 40 and 30 when Djokovic was out. But then the complaint was, to the extent that I heard it, was that the top players were too high. And I guess you, 
there is a case to be made that you know if the if the top guy is you know a a thirty year old double digit slam winner, you should give him more credit than you should give Medvedev or Zverev right now. But um, I think it's right to ignore you know slam count from five years ago and doing these kind of ratings. So I just found that ironic that those those are the kind of reactions I get from the same sorts of distributions. Yeah, it's really the the big three chances are too low was the complaint. Always. That was the consistency. Yeah, I get that. That is the consistency. Um, so I guess the the one follow-up to that is, we, we've talked about this before, specifically with Osaka and probably with other players, that with Osaka, she has this crazy stat that, is it, she's never lost a match at a major in the quarterfinals or later. I think that's still true. Um, unless, was it, the, did she make it to the quarterfinals this year? No. She lost in the fourth round. Yeah. The third round, wow, feels like more recent than that. But okay, so she still she has that stat. So it feels like if if it's conceivable, that's a real thing. I mean, I don't think we have enough data to know that's a real thing. But if it were a real thing, we would we would do a different calculation for Osaka's chances of winning in the second round than in the quarterfinals. It might not really affect the the pre-tournament forecast, but once you get to the fourth round or the the quarterfinals, it would affect the pre-tournament forecast a lot. I guess Serena had the same set of really really impressive stats. Um, do you think if you have someone like Nadal who obviously is great, there's an injury risk, so there's times he's lost because he's not 100% fit. If he does make it to the second week of a slam, that's a pretty strong signal that he is fit. Do you think maybe we should be looking at adjusting, at least for some players, adjusting their probabilities once they get to that point in the tournament, because if they've gotten that far, then that's telling us more than if, you know, Mikhail Kukushkin got to the second week of a tournament. It's easy for me to say, sure, because I wouldn't be the one who has to figure out how to implement that in some <laughs> kind of sensible, consistent way. I mean, it, it has, I think maybe we've talked about, um, like, an event ELO or something, like, you know, who have you beaten to get to this stage? And, you know, do you wait these more recent matches even more because it's the same event they just happened it's the same surface um can you somehow take into account by how much they won i mean now we're talking about like a whole different system could that be like blended in but that almost doesn't cover like the rafa osaka case because the argument there isn't that they like have shown their dominant level by cruising to that stage it's like they might have just barely gotten there but once they're there we know they're they're in with the chance they're tough their best tennis is ahead of them whatever choose your cliche and i don't know how to how to capture that unless we just sort of force some sort of factor like okay uh rafa has this much of a chance but because it's a quarterfinal we you know we add 10 percentage points or something I, i i can't think of like a really sensible way to do it we could just look at the forecast and say this might underrate Rafa's chances because that's that's the way I prefer to do it. Yeah, that, I think that's probably what we'll end up at, up with as well. I'm just I I hear so many suggestions like that because my 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 forecasts are public and pe- people have lots of ideas. They're not always really as well thought through as as you're considering what will what would actually be involved in doing it or what what data would be necessary or what trade-offs might be involved. But. Um, I mean, I, I do put those forecasts out there with the full knowledge and occasional acknowledgement that they're not perfect. That I mean, if, if I if I were putting money on these matches, I I would at least investigate all these wrinkles, and, and I'm just not doing that. I mean, I think some of the value in the forecasts is to not quite be perfect, to be not a dumb forecast, but to be a fairly naive forecast. Uh, 
without considering things like the likelihood that the roof will be closed or something like that. If you, if you want all that stuff, then you go to the betting odds, and that's, that's the end of the story. I'm not going to beat that, probably. So, okay, that was a little bit more Australian Open than I meant to talk, but once you get into this stuff, it's tough to get out. So the main reason I wanted to talk to Carl um, was as part of the Tennis 128 project, we've now seen player number 128 and player number 127 the 127th greatest tennis player of the last century, according to me, is Stan Bavrinka. And Carl and I have been following Stan's career for more than a decade. Carl was writing about Stan's breakthrough eight years ago, nine years ago. Uh, and let, let's start by, by talking about the era where, that we have to deal with with Stan. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing that... There are, there are players who reached number one in both the men's and women's game, amateur era, pro era, plenty of people who were named number one who are not in the top 128. And Stan peaked at number three, I think, uh, and, and he seems to belong here. So the era is a big factor. So let's just start with terminology. Now we're talking about the big three. Uh, Federer is an unknown quantity at this point, so maybe we have the big two, assuming Djokovic figures out how to get in tournaments. Back when Stan was at his peak, it was the big five. Before that, it was the big four. Um, is, is there a term we can use to, to actually make sense of all this? Uh, yeah, I don't know how much big five caught on, but I think clearly, like there were times when it wasn't clear who the fifth would be if there was a big five after Andy Murray. But by the time Vavrinka had won his third slam title, I think it was it was pretty clear that, that he was the fifth. Um, that's the problem with the terminology is that it was it was more useful after the fact than it was going into tournaments uh, because you know you could have there were times when it looked like maybe it's David Ferrer, but he he didn't break through in the same way. And it is nice, at least, as, as we're trying to get a historical perspective on this, we can kind of settle on big three. Everybody knows what that means, but it, I, I'm still using big four to refer to. I mean, we all know who those four guys are, but uh, it, it, it is starting to feel a little awkward, especially as, as we get used to Andy Murray, the challenger, not Andy Murray, the, the perennial semifinalist. Um, do you think there would have been eras where Stan Wawrinka was number one in the world? Yes. What do you think? Well, I, I guess it depends on what I mean by the question. <laughs> so let me pick apart my own question. Um, or let me pick apart and you tell me what you think. It, are there eras that were weaker than this one? I mean, obviously. I mean, the, the, by this one, let's say 2010 to 2017 or so. I mean, the, the, I'm not sure ten, men's tennis was ever any better than that. It was it's certainly in the conversation. Uh, if... If let me phrase the question a different way, if you teleported teleported the Stan Wawrinka we know and love to a weak era, let's say we we let Stan Wawrinka turn twenty eight in nineteen ninety eight, I don't know. Let's say nineteen ninety eight, um, would he have been number one? Oh, okay. So I, I th- thought it was initially phrased as could he have been? Um, would he have been? Yeah, probably not. But I could certainly see him instead of you know winning a slam a year and going deep at a, one or two more, maybe winning two and going deep at another. He he certainly did his best work at slam, so he would have needed to get those ranking points there. Um, but I could see him like rolling in as a four seed and and just knocking off the best players in the world coming into the next one as, as two seed. I mean, it's a little strange to think about because he, 
he um, had to get good enough to beat these guys enough to have a chance at slams. And we'd be talking about a different era where none of these guys were, were playing and the, the level at the top wasn't the same. But I, I don't think uh, he would have let that hold him back from taking the opportunity. So you, you pointed out one reason why I asked that question. Stan was well known as once he started contending at slams and finally winning slams, that was that was where he was really dangerous. And outside of slams, even at Masters, which for some players seem almost as important, um, he didn't really show up in the same way. And I mean, he'd sometimes threaten. He, I think he finally won one, got to a final or something, but he wasn't really a threat at at, at Masters in the same way. So that would have been true in any era. Do you think that? Do you think that his his lack of uh, of a being a factor at Masters or maybe five hundred to some extent extent was that because of the type of guy he was, or was that because the the level of the field was just so strong at that time? There there always seemed to be something about how he approached matches that worked well for best of five, even before he was he had reached kind of peak Stan. Um, so I don't know exactly what that was. He probably wasn't, you know, the he wasn't as fit as the as Rafa Djokovic Murray anyway, but he was able to to last and play, you know, hit the ball as hard at the end, but also like just um, bring his level back if he drops sets, uh, and you don't get as much of a chance in best of three. I think in the end he did win a Masters, beating Federer in a final in Monte Carlo because I think that was a chance for Federer to get Monte Carlo and maybe made another final or two. The other thing about, I don't know if we're off this hypothetical, but in the hypothetical, the the point value you needed to be number one was much lower. I mean, the crazy thing about that strong arrow was that everyone was beating, all everyone at the top was beating everybody else. And so, you know, you had to have a really high um, ranking point total because if one of them wasn't winning the title, another one of them was. Uh, it wasn't like, so anyway, so I think like you could have done done it in a weaker era with with fewer points. But, you know, it is true that we're, to the extent Stan makes the cut just barely on your list, it's it's on the strength, largely what he did at majors. And your list isn't really geared toward weighting majors particularly hev- heavily. But at those majors, he was beating really top players. And you are rewarding that in terms of uh, what somebody's ELO rating is. And, and, and Stan did it in these highest profile, most important matches. Yeah, that is it is inter- interesting. And I was so glad that he ended up making the cut because you're exactly right. Like, Obviously, winning seven matches at a major will do wonders for your ELO rating, especially if you're beating players as good as Stan did. But I don't think ELO liked him much better than the ATP rankings did. I mean, there are, there are players who who peaked at number four in the official rankings, but got a lot higher in ELO, and vice versa. Um, they pretty much agree for Stan, and the same is true for some of the other challengers in the in, in the Big Four era. Uh, so what what my ratings are saying more is the era was so good that someone who could creep his way up to number three. Um, at pretty much the peak of this era is himself an incredible player. I mean, number three here or a career of being top five or top six, uh, that's good enough. And that's a that's a pretty remarkable thing when we tend to think solely about those three magical fortnights or maybe one one or two more times that he got close, that that actually translates into a sustained level of a really high performance. Uh, 
I made the argument in in my piece on Stan today that it's his success or his improvement that that led him from being a an outsider looking in and sort of top 20 but not top 10 guy to becoming a slam contender and ultimately a slam winner wasn't because of the backhand that he's so famous for it was because his his serve improved and maybe more specifically that the game behind his serve his serve plus one maybe specifically his forehand improved behind that do you do you think that's right yeah, I can't argue with the numbers, and and I looked at them again after reading your story, and they they really are are stark. Um, and you know, I, I also you mentioned serve plus forehand, and and I wanted to to hear your thoughts on Stan's forehand versus backhand, because in the piece you you say great things about the backhand, but say there's no real evidence it, it improved during that period. Um, and I'm wondering how, like, what is your current feeling about the stats you've got to measure how good someone's forehand and backhand are and what they, what they say about stands? I'm really not confident at all in, in, okay. <laughs> in charting base stats on forehands and backhands. Not at all. Um, I, I mean, I, I think certainly stands improved. We know, I mean, in, partly from, from just rep- reporting from what Stan said himself, including one of the pieces you wrote, that he changed his tactics and it's I don't know how to separate a more aggressive tactical forehand from a better forehand and because I think at some level they're indistinguishable I mean clearly there are ways in which in some cases they could be distinguished like if if your forehand gets better you'll hit more winners and fewer unforced errors from the same positions fine Uh, maybe you can isolate that as saying in in first shots after the serve you're going to hit more winners and fewer unforced errors or even just fewer unforced errors. I don't know, um, but th- there's so many factors, and that that's I wanted to be more specific than I was in in writing the piece in in separating whether it was the serve or whether it was the plus one specifically the plus one forehand. So I would like to know, but I I don't know how you separate them without at least without a lot better data, because if if you start serving better, you get easier forehands to hit. If you're hitting better forehands, it looks like those returns are are not as good as they were so it means your serve could have been better i i don't know i mean i didn't, i i don't have the stats to confirm that you know stan's backhand was i think i used the, the phrase 98th and 99th percentile in in the piece and i i can't verify that i don't know how to verify that I, certainly among one-handers i i can't imagine whose was better but i i'm, I'm not sure if it was if it was quite that good better than the forehand yes but I mean, where do you think the the, the Vavrinka backhand ranks? I mean, among one-handers, it's great, but do you think his one-hander was as good as the best two-handers? His his not not talking about the slice, right? Just the yeah, just the, the drive just backhand. the the drive. I like that you use the. I feel like people don't use the word drive enough, so we end up saying topspin <laughs> shots. We don't really mean topspin forehand, topspin backhand. We're not trying to emphasize the spin. It's the drive, but that it's it's fallen out of fashion. All right, we're bringing it back. Um, yeah, I think it's it was up there. I I don't know. I mean, I I look a lot at your forehand potency, backhand potency stats, and maybe I shouldn't because it sounds like you don't think the charting is able to really distinguish that. Um, I based on that, it it doesn't look like Vavrinka's backhand was was compa- was as good as Djokovic's or, or Murray's, um, but it certainly looked super impressive. I mean, that, it's so hard to compare the one-handers to the two-handers because there's such like 
extra points given for a really sweeping backhand down the line winner when it's a one-hander um, that doesn't really reflect like how useful it is in winning matches. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's certainly a one wonderful thing. I'm I'm watching Vavrinka highlights while we're talking to get more in the mood, and you know, the a lot of them focus on his his backhand winners, but he also hit a lot of errors with it. He was very aggressive with it, and um, that that hurts just as much. So um, I, I find it a, a hard question to answer. And, and based on reading your piece and, and also just thinking about how he would still favor his forehand when he had a put-away ball, uh, the, the serve plus forehand feels like the more important uh, ingredient in explaining his ascent to near the top. Yeah, I, I, I've never tested this, but I always wonder how well you could rate players' forehands and backhands simply by looking at how often they chose to hit them. Um, most players are going to have one good wing, and a lot of the, especially the guys with with good one-handed backhands, they will go, they'll enormously fade toward the forehand side or toward hitting forehands. I'm never never sure about the terminology there, but um, they'll they'll hit a lot of inside-out forehands, and that's that's the most important vote you need in a way. <laughs> if Stan didn't think his backhand was worth hitting that situation, then hmm, maybe it wasn't quite as good. Um, how much credit do you think we can give to Magnus Norman? He arrived on the scene after the, the 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 monster Australian Open match in 2013. I'm so bad at remembering years, but he gets a lot of credit for Stan winning the first slam of the following year. He was with Stan through the, his entire peak. He seems to have been involved in that tactical transition toward a more aggressive game, but just like separating shots separating coach from from player influences is really hard to know so where do you come down on this one yeah i mean i think especially for the purposes of this list i get to be or i'm going to choose to be kind of lazy about figuring that out just in terms of i'm going to give the player the credit regardless like if it, especially in tennis as opposed to a team sport where they're the ceo and they get to decide to bring on a coach and to keep working with the coach and how much to listen to the coach and what to incorporate and what to push back on. Um, ultimately, they're the they're in charge. Now, you know, there are things that are unequal about tennis, like Vavrinka had to get to a point to be able to afford whatever help he, he needed, and many players never get there. But nonetheless, I think there's a lot of evidence that Norman played a big role and I'm going to give Vavrinka all the credit that he would have gotten if he didn't have a coach during that time um, for for seeing the value there. In terms of the evidence, the timing is strong, I think what Vavrinka himself has said. Uh, but yeah, I think also just how long he was with him for. He kept him around. Like that 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 vote of confidence suggests that he saw value there. So much like we can judge his forehand and backhand by which one he chooses to use when he has the choice, uh, you could say the same about his coach. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you don't see a lot of successful coach par- coach player partnerships and after one or two seasons. I'm sure there are exceptions. Um, okay, here's a few of Stan's head-to-heads. I want you to tell me which one you think is most impressive. Uh, he was 6-21 versus Novak Djokovic, and that includes at least one win by retirement. He was 9-12 against Andy Murray, and he was 13-12, sorry, 13-2 versus Marin Cilic. So, which one of those three is most impressive? Hmm. 
isn't it amazing that we're considering a six and 21 as a contender? I mean, that's, that is one of the best records against Djokovic, but it, it doesn't sound good at all. Well, especially since, yeah, at least one of those is a win by retirement. So it's really probably five and 21. I mean, considering that, I just think it's shocking that you didn't include Djokovic in your 120. I'm just kidding. Yeah. If it's just just because you changed the number, I'm going to pretend that was decisive. I'm going to go narrowly with the Chilich one. Really? I mean, Chilich is not. Yeah, I, I know that's probably wrong and it's probably not true in terms of sort of ELO points gained. But 21 is just a lot of losses. And to be that dominant against a player who was probably generally closer to his prime or around the same, you know, cl- close in age, a few years younger. Um, but a lot of those matches would be around when Chilich reached the U.S. Open final, made a couple other slam finals. Um, I think it just shows that separation between this big five, if we're going to call them that, and everybody else and kind of justifies a little better Vavrinka's place. And maybe I'm just choosing it to emphasize a point and not because it's it's right, but I think if we talk about Vavrinka's like having won three slam titles and having beaten some top players to get there, the five and 21 or six and 21 does point out that he occasionally also beat top players at other times, but he usually lost to them. The 13 and two points out it wasn't a fluke that he got to those matches against the top players because he was really good at beating some other really good players. It, that's a good point. Um, although I did kind of cherry pick, <laughs> I did kind of cherry pick Chilich because I kind of exp- when I first thought of that question, I, I assumed there'd be somebody pretty good. He was like. 10 and 0 against but there wasn't like I think, this is the best we could do this is the best he could do i think he was 8 and 0 versus victor troitsky or something like that like there's a couple more 7 and 0s like that but he wasn't that's as close as you get to stan Wawrinka dominating anybody who's a, a really good player which is it's interesting you don't see that with very many guys like especially once you go a little further back in time, like any reasonably good player just has these tremendously lopsided head-to-heads against the rest of the pack, and Stan really didn't. But Jeff, th- this is a Monty Hall problem. I didn't know I was going to defend all of Vavrinka's records against everyone else. I just got the best possible uh, record to, you know, it's, to it's, talk it's about. It's not a fair question. I, I told Joe Posansky on the last episode that there are no right answers here, only wrong answers. And that's... <laughs> I probably should warn guests ahead of time that that's the situation. Uh, okay, two more questions before I let you go. Um, the first, okay, this is, this is a big one, and it ties back to what we were talking about with transplanting Vavrinka into an earlier era. Um, in general, what is the magnitude of era differences? And I don't I, I, honestly, I, I I don't know what the answer to this question is. I, I'm I, this is feels like the sort of question I'm going to start asking everyone to to get a sense of what people think about it. Um, so, for instance, if if we we knew that some specific player was the weakest number one of all time, like let I don't want to pick on Pat Rafter, but let's say Pat Rafter as the weakest number one <laughs> of all time. I mean, if it, it, it it's got to be somebody. Let's say it's Pat. Um, if if you transplanted him to the best era of all time, maybe maybe it is Stan's peak. Maybe maybe it's 1980 ATP or something. Whichever one you think is the strongest. What does Pat? What is Pat Rafter's peak ranking, if he was placed in that era? Yeah, and I, I think that gets at um, potentially something beyond just strength of era. Because as I'm watching Favrinka and thinking back to your question about transplanting him to let's say the late '90s, 
the the defense just wasn't what it was in Vavrinka's era. Like the fact that he was able to beat Djokovic five times, Murray nine times with with a power game, despite them being maybe the two best uh, defenders ever. And Vavrinka had, had some big wins over Rafa, although his record wasn't as good. Um, you know, how would how would he have been able to to win with that power game in an era where the defense was was not as strong at, at the top? Um, and then, you know, with Rafter, thinking of like how hard it is to serve in volley against some of the best returners of all time, who happen to also be among the best defenders, very closely correlated skill. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, sure, he could have adjusted. He could have figured out how to be a better baseliner. But I don't know, 15, 10? Okay. Um, I, I mean, it's, it sounds like you're basing that more on game <laughs> styles, though. So, I mean, if, if Pat well, Rafter were a baseliner... Would you be the if same? If right after a baseliner, I'd put it higher, but not at one. So I'm saying it's a combination. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think in terms of being able to, like, answer the question, you've done stuff like this looking at players who have overlap between eras. And it did – I mean, this is really just based on memory, but it seems like a lot of the players from that Rafter era didn't really carry forward – like, didn't play very late into their careers – and one possible, you know, I think a lot of people thought, oh, that's just when tennis players retire. But it could just be that they weren't like hanging with the new, um, with, with, with tennis after it uh, and the way that it got stronger and changed. Do you, do you think there's anything to the sort of retirement age or, you know, looking at specific players and how they do in different periods as, um, as a way to try to answer the question? I think that's one place to look. It's it, it's really hard, and that's part of the reason why I'm puzzled by this question. What I one thing I have looked at in the past is yeah, looking at looking at how players do in these sort of intermediate eras, and unfortunately, because the level of the game has improved in every era, objectively speaking, like every era looks better than the one before, um, in terms of the players being better. But if you want to compare, I'm not sure I'm, I'm communicating this very well, but you end up with the best players of today always are the best of all time because at least in, in one sense, objectively they are. Uh, but I don't think that's what we really mean when we're talking about the greatest of all time. Uh, maybe, maybe Leighton Hewitt in 2001 or 2002 was in that sense better than Pete Sampras had been at his peak or better even than Bjorn Borg had been at his peak, but that's not really what we mean. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe the fact that those guys didn't last long, it could it could also be the game style because they were they were playing they were playing an aggressive serve and volley game at a time when um, when the defense was getting better. I mean, the serve and volleyers who lasted into their late into their thirties were playing at a time when guys would tank sets when they they weren't good at returns. Nobody had a two handed backhand. It's a really tough comparisons to make. So this is why I ask the questions here. You're not supposed to spit them back at me. <laughs> That's when you say, oh, the Zoom connection isn't great. Sorry, let's move on to the Exactly. Next click, click. Okay, final question. I know you've got to run. Um, I said in my intro there were about 20 players with a plausible case for the greatest of all time. And I say that partly because there's about 20 names I can think of that I can remember somebody sometimes saying, okay, he's the greatest of all time or she's the greatest of all time. I think we all kind of know who those are. I'm not going to give you the list, but I'm sure we arrive at most of the same names. Who do you think is the worst of those players of the potential goats? Who's at the bottom of the list? <laughs> Working as a Pentecostal minister, 
it can't be used as a factor here. <laughs> you can't demote anybody down the list because right. of her current job. Right. I was not going to 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 say that because I've read your your data. It's very persuasive. Oh, I don't know. I because I'm not entirely sure. I, I know you say we all know who the twenty are. I think we all know who ten or fifteen of them are. The the boundaries get fuzzy. I I mean I think that Sampras. It has to be in that group, and I think he's probably near the bottom, so I'm just going to say him as, like, the safest bet to both be in the 20 and be between 11 and 20. Um, but, yeah, I don't I don't feel very confident about that. That's interesting. You're the second person I've talked to um, who has who's come up with Sampras, and I, I'm, I'm surprised. Like, I don't, I don't disagree. I think Sampras is easy to overrate because he had the, the, the slam lead, and people give too much credit to that. But... Um, but yeah, partly because of the era, partly because of um, being a non-factor on clay. He's, yeah, he he's definitely one of the greats, but he's, uh, uh, spoiler alert, he's not number one out of the tennis 128. Um, okay, so any, any final thoughts, Carl, before we let you go? Well, I just, you know, I, I know this is the, not the first, podcast you're recording about the project but it's the first i'm on and maybe the first where we're talking about one of the 128 so i just want to say how much fun this is how much fun it is to be on how just totally crazy it is <laughs> i'm glad i get to read it but not not write it but um i mean just the the level of detail you have about about stan and also about baker and 128 um and also, you know, the way you're bringing together different kinds of data. So for her and for some of the older players, we're not going to have charts, we're not going to have video, but you really dug through the archives for whatever we could say about game style, biography, everything else. And then for Stan, there's so many questions we still have, even with all the data, uh, thanks to your match charting project. So I, I think this is going to be a great finished product, and it's also a work in progress. And Stan is a work in progress. I mean, we might have the big five together at a major sometime this year. Uh, and I don't know if Stan will um, add on that last win that you mentioned high up that would that would bring him into a, a tie, but um, he might have a shot and and that's that's pretty cool. So he's he's gotten to 127 even without whatever he manages to still do when he comes back from injury. Well, thank you for all that. I, I hope to live up to your expectations in the remaining 126 installments of this series. I'm I probably won't, but you know I appreciate the the faith. Um, so Carl, yeah, we'll definitely definitely check back in as we get through the 128 throughout the year. Um, thank you for joining me today, and yeah, thank you everyone for listening. This has been episode 110 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. I've been joined by Carl Bialik, my longtime host and collaborator. And I hope everyone is keeping up with the Tennis 128 standoff ranking today and three new players rolling out next week. Um, enjoy and check back in next time.